Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 7th. 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, reminding you again, Sunday, November 13th in New York City at a fancy schmancy hotel. Details to be provided when you sign up. The Commentary Roast of Barry Weiss. Greatest event of the year. A lot of people tell me that. Two hours of hijinks, hilarity, drinks, food, um, comedy, and uh, communion with your fellow people who think Similarly to the way you, you think, but uh, capaciously, as Barry's, as the example of Barry will show, uh, we will celebrate her and take her down a few pegs, which is what roasts are for. Uh, go to commentary.org slash roast for details. It's a bite. It's going to hurt. It's costly. It costs a lot to come to the roast. But you know what? You owe us. You listen. We're providing you with free entertainment five hours a week. You could uh, you could pony up a little to help us uh, keep that going, uh, I, I suppose. So that's commentary.org slash roast. And now I've got to say something that makes no sense, which is we had trouble yesterday with uh, our podcast getting uploaded to iTunes and to the Apple podcast uh, app uh, on your iPhone. Um, and uh, that trouble seems to be persisting this morning. So if here's why it makes no sense what I'm saying. If you can't listen, if you haven't been able to hear it on iTunes, then you need to listen until we get this fixed. And we don't know how to fix it because you can't reach anybody at Apple, nor can we reach anybody at SoundCloud, which hosts our podcast. Um, then you should go to commentary.org and listen to the podcast there. But of course, if you can't hear me saying this, then why am I even mentioning this? I don't know, but you can hear it on Spotify. If you have a Spotify subscription, you can hear it on Stitcher. You can hear it on Google Play. You can hear it on all kinds of other podcast platforms, none of which I use. So I don't even know how to use them. So go to commentary.org. And, you know, that's also a good occasion for you to subscribe to commentary along with going to the roast. That is something that is kind of a moral obligation on your part. This is not a pledge drive, but it's a nonprofit organization. We're here producing the website, the magazine, and the podcast five days a week. We depend on our donors and our subscribers to provide us with the lucre that makes all this possible. Subscribe, go listen, and hopefully we will have the Apple podcast problem solved uh, in due course. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. See I forgot good? to say I hi, Christine. That was like, that Such was a good really podcaster. good. <laughs> that was really good. That was like, that was like, it was a test. You're waiting. Yeah. You were waiting for me to say, you know, okay. And then you could take the treat or something, right? <laughs> we're really getting Pavlovian this week. This is yeah. like a theme. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We had a whole Pavlov thing yesterday <laughs> and uh, associate editor and author of the rise of the new Puritans, Noah Rossman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. All right. Uh, so uh, I, I just want to point out that the Washington Post lead story right now, which is about the leak that uh, FBI investigators found a document in the Mar-a-Lago search, the second search, the one that they did on under the warrant, not the one they did in June, agreeing, you know, that was done with Trump's agreement, but the one that was done as a result of the warrant, found a, a highly sensitive document. Uh, detailing uh, information about a, another country's 
a nuclear program. Here's the point I want to make. I would talk about whether or not, you know, obviously Trump's handling of this material is shocking. And anybody who thinks that Trump's handling of this material is, isn't shocking is just making excuses because you like him and you don't want to believe that his handling of the material is shocking. It's shocking. It's disgraceful. Uh, yes, uh, anybody else in the federal government would be prosecuted for behaving this way and uh, that the guy uh, got himself elected in part by saying that Hillary Clinton should be locked up for her mishandling of classified information uh, is the uh, one of the one of the most bitter and savage ironies of this moment. But that's not what I want to talk about. That is the language in The Washington Post story, which says that FBI uh, investigators were alarmed to find this document. Now, I'm highlighting the word alarmed because, you know, they weren't alarmed. They were jazzed. They were thrilled. This is why they did this. They went on a fishing expedition and they found a fish. They found a marlin, it appears, in the form of this document. And the idea that, you know, they're saying they're going, oh, this is extremely alarming. My God, can you believe that there is a document detailing information about the nuclear program that ordinarily could only be viewed in a skiff that's a self-contained can't remember what the facility, uh, uh, intelligence facility. Um, and you could only look at it there. And there are people in the Biden administration that don't even know blah, blah, blah. They couldn't even look at it. And there are people at high ranking who couldn't even this and that. They're so alarmed. They're not alarmed. They want to get him. They're going after him. And when you are do when you're on a search looking for something and you find, you know, you like you're, you're panning for gold and you find a gold nugget, you're not alarmed to find the gold nugget. I have nothing else to say about this except that I was amused by the use of the word alarmed because human nature tells you that is not how the FBI investigators felt when they found the document uh, in the room with the lock on it in the basement. If that's where they found it, they actually don't say where where on Mar in Mar-a-Lago they found it. I mean, you, that sort of assumes that the FBI has been enjoying all this. That every minute that they've that the since this happened, since the raid, that the FBI has been reveling in this process. And every leak we've heard suggests that they agonized over it, that they they examined every possible way to do this, that they executed this search at night when the president wasn't around to as minimize as much publicity as possible, which backfired on them spectacularly. The suggestion here that they know what they're doing have gamed this out and are enjoying this process seems to me betrayed by all the media coverage of it. Yeah, the leaking is is a little disturbing. I mean, the department they've been pretty strategic in their leaking so far, but th this is it's not good that our Justice Department in the midst of a criminal investigation of a former president is leaking to the Washington Post constantly. It's just this steady drip that that of course suits uh suits the argument being made both by the mainstream media and the Department of Justice. So it it, it doesn't help. Doesn't help. They shouldn't be leaking. Look, I don't I don't know if the FBI is delighted or not. Um but the I think the Washington Post is the media is and it's got like and, 12 uh, million comments on that article already. Yes. They yeah. Love it. Yeah. And all the consumers of this stuff um, are they are completely tickled. But regarding the leaking, I think there's going to be quite a bit more of it because of the fact that Trump has sort of thrown a, a, a wrench into the works here and managed to sort of delay what what could what people were hoping would be his comeuppance um, uh, in, in the form of the special master and, and that whole process. Um, there's going to be a sort of retaliatory campaign to, to sort of 
keep keep the idea of his his guilt afloat. Uh, sorry, a million comments on that post order. Can I add? Bill Barr is not helping Trump's case. He went he went on uh, the news the other yesterday and said he shouldn't have these documents. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is one of his. You know, yeah. this, this is important that Bill Barr is saying what we've all just been talking about. Prosecutors leak. Police departments leak. The FBI leaks. This is what happens. They shouldn't, and they do, and they do because they understand that part of what they're doing uh, involves um, support for their credibility. And once again, we have this, we are two countries with two separate bodies of public opinion. And the uh, public opinion that wants Trump nailed and thrown 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 into jail or destroyed or made impossible to run again or brought down low or humiliated um, is a completely separate silo from the people who are saying, this is terrible. The FBI shouldn't leak. He's the former president. They shouldn't have raided his house. This is outrageous. What kind of country are we living in? And um, the FBI, uh, I think, is more likely to spend its time uh, trying to appeal to the silo that wants Trump gone rather than the silo that uh, believes that Trump is being mistreated. And I just think that as a matter of course, if you are on a squad or a team that is investigating malfeasance, when you find an example of potential malfeasance, you're happy because then all the work you're doing isn't for naught. Like the worst thing, and I say this only in my experience as an investigative journalist, which is not great, but I did a lot of editing of investigative journalism. The worst thing is you spend hours and days and weeks in this digging through documents and stuff like that, and then you come up with nothing, which often happens, which is part of the story of the investigative process in any set of circumstances. And so would the FBI investigators at Mar-a-Lago or wherever it was that they found this document or they went through it afterwards and found it, would they be pleased to have found evidence that what they were doing was valuable and important in their own lights and that was actually going to end up in some possibly end up in some form of triumph for them as the frontline investigators of this malfeasance? That's human nature. Of course, that's what they want. Do they want to stand there? I mean, this is like we know that our system says everyone is obliged in our legal system to believe that, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. But there is no prosecutor on earth. And granted, these are not prosecutors right there. But there's no prosecutor on earth who taking a case wants to then prove the, you know, the person that they're going after innocent or 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 or. Um, or, you know, not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's the purpose of the adversarial system to have somebody else who says, no, no, we're innocent. Um, maybe it should be, you know, maybe we should be more Solomonic about this and have a much more Solomonic system in which the people who who do this are much more concerned with not being, you know, prosecutorially, you know, Javertian in their efforts to get people, but that's not that's not where we are. But yes, I think it's very important to uh, call out the crocodile tears of the mainstream media liberals and analysts when they say what Trump is doing is just incredibly alarming. This is like, oh my god, this is Christmas in September. This, 
look what has fallen in our laps. This moron took all these documents to Mar-a-Lago because he can't, he has to walk around with boxes, as we talked about yesterday, with boxes of stuff in his lap. And, you know, basically may have just like, you know, shot himself in the foot or in the head or shot himself, period. Thank God. Woo. You know, God is not mocked, you know, karma, whatever, you know. That's all I'm saying. No, I'm not saying Maybe. that. So, but the, the thesis boils down to the media is pouncing. They're pouncing on the story. The story is the story. The president is being investigated. The president basically admitted to doing what he's being investigated for. But the reaction to the story has become the story. Well, look, the media loves not to pounce when pouncing is discomforting to the media. Ergo, i.e. case in point, Hunter Biden and the laptop. And the fact that it's now a year and a half later and uh, nobody has apologized for defaming the New York Post for suppressing information. Now, by the way, I do not believe that had the Hunter lap Biden laptop story been a major story that it would have played any role in the November 2020 election. I do not believe that proving that Hunter Biden is a sleazebag who traded on his father's name for business would have brought Joe Biden down. I don't think it would have happened. It's one of the reasons I think that the reaction to the story was insane on the part of people saying, oh, the Russians invented the laptop, whatever. Um, but, you know, yeah, this stuff is all a matter of selective prosecution on the part of 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 the media. And they're selectively persecuting, prosecuting Trump. And they are trying to leave the Biden family the hell alone to the extent possible. So it's not like they just go at any target whatsoever. They're not going at any target whatsoever. Um, okay, I'm calling an audible because I wanted to talk about something. I forgot to talk about it. And now I want to talk about it with you guys. And we haven't, I haven't let you know that we're going to do this. But I'm fascinated by something because we have Charlie Crist and Kathy Hochul, you know, on either end of Route 1 or I-95 or whatever. Uh, these two uh, candidates for governor, uh, Kathy Oakle, the sitting governor of New York, but only because of Andrew Cuomo's defenestration, and Charlie Crist, the former governor of Florida, running for governor again against Ron DeSantis, um, saying that they don't like people who disagree with them and that they shouldn't, they don't belong in their state. Or uh, don't vote for me if you're full of hate, says Charlie Crist and Kathy Hochul, following, by the way, in uh, the lines of something that Andrew Cuomo said in 2013, 2014, after after gay marriage was made legal, that people who don't believe in gay marriage shouldn't live in New York state. And Kathy Hochul has said, if you have bad view, if you have views that are like Republican views, you should not live in my state. Um. What? I mean, I mean, uh, I understand that we all want to live in our bubbles. Uh, Florida has 28 or 29 million people in it. New York State has 18 or 19 million people in it. What is going on here with this rhetoric? But this is it's got to be one of two things. Uh, it's got to be for fundraising purposes or just simply sheer desperation. In Charlie Chris case, it's got to be desperation. But this is where the virtue signaling rubber hits the road, right? Activists, media personalities, academics, there's tons of people, corporate America, are happy to virtue signal as, as you know, 
for as long as the day is long. When politicians do it, they there are more swift and immediate repercussions for it. So saying that you don't want people filled with hate in your state, that's a virtue signal of if you're not, you know, for pro-abortion rights, if you're not woke, if you're not all these things that that, you know, the uh, culture wars have, have been battling for, for the last several years, then you don't belong here. That appeals to their base. Maybe it gets them out to the polls. Maybe it says we're the good people. The sanctimony is strong here. But it's extremely dangerous for a politician in a divided political environment to do that. And I hope they both learn that lesson. Um, I, I'm sure Charlie Crist will will learn that lesson. DeSantis yesterday released a wonderful ad uh, of, again, working class people, regular Floridians saying thank you to the governor for all the things. Most importantly, kids looking right at the camera and saying, thank you for letting me learn, keeping schools open, letting people make choices. It was all about freedom and individual opportunity. It was a great ad. Uh, Chris has nothing to rival that except this kind of complaining to his base. Okay. You I want to, I want to, I, I just want to read the Chris quote because I think it's important because I, 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 it's much worse than what I let you think. So here's what he said. Those who support the governor should stay with him. I don't want your vote. If you have that hate in your heart, keep it there. I'm going to beat DeSantis because I'm running on love and love always wins. If he wants to run on hate, culture wars, dividing people and making people hate each other, that's his turf. It's not He sounds mine. like a refrigerator magnet. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but here's my, my point, okay? You are running for governor of a state that is closely divided. You want every single vote that you can possibly get. Granted, it's rhetoric, whatever. You're saying I don't want your vote to voters is psychotic. You want that vote. You you don't you shouldn't care how you get the vote. You're you will be governor and then you will govern the way you govern. When do politicians George W Bush said he learned something once he ran for office and lost? And a guy said, you know, I liked you and I was going to vote for you, but then I didn't or something or I didn't come out. And Bush said, why? And Bush said, and the guy said, well, you, I met you at an event and you didn't ask for my vote. And if you think about what George W. Bush did in the aftermath of that, in his speeches, when he was running for governor twice, president twice, he said, I'm asking for your vote. He said it all the time he said it in every speech he said it at every fundraiser he said i'm asking for your vote you know why because that is the respectful thing to do when you are going and asking somebody for something you're saying vote for me that is a request that you are not saying i i expect your vote or i don't want your vote you're saying vote for me and he's just said DeSantis, at the very least, is going to get 48 or 49 percent of the vote in Florida. He doesn't want a single one of those voters to rethink themselves and come vote for him. I mean, is it all rhetoric or do we have something larger to learn from this? Abe, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, no, I was just going to say that I think the in the case of New York, um, I think it's one thing to say uh, if you don't believe in gay marriage, you don't belong in the state. I think it's bad to say that, but it it has to do with a with a moral position. To me, that's different from saying what what Kathy Hochul said, which is, um, we don't need your party in this state. We are we are this is this is where Democrats rule. Um, get out, you're done. 
you don't you don't belong here by virtue of 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 you not being in my party. Um, that I find uh, more worrisome, creepier, um, and and I think that is new. I don't I don't it's rhetoric, yeah, but I I, I don't understand in service to what. It's not all that new. Uh, Andrew Cuomo did the same thing in 2014. Right. As a yes. Right. No. So but, it's like, but, but he, you know, but, this is just this is what but they're he wasn't believe. running for office when he said it. He actually was not a candidate for governor. The first time that he was running for governor, he said it like, we don't want you here. Like, if you don't if you if you don't think that love is love, then, you know, New York is not the place for you. But he but, actually but saying, wasn't I think that's different. I think that's a little different. Uh, what's bizarre about Hochul saying this about Republicans is that she represented in Congress a Republican district in upstate New York. She was in Congress for two years before Cuomo named her his, um, uh, you know, uh, lieutenant governor. And uh, the district that she was in, Chris Collins, then won the district and then he ran into legal trouble. But she was in a purple district. She literally spent her career uh you know, as a Democrat in a in a conservative leaning, that's her base is a purple is a purple base. And now she has kind of seized this astoundingly divisive rhetoric. But this but this is what they what else do they have to do when you want to present voters with a clear choice in an upcoming election, particularly a midterm where people are not as inclined to, sh to turn out because there's no one at the top of the ticket on the ballot. You have to give them a clear choice. If you go on the clear choice of how things are going in this country, that's not great for Democrats. So they're trying to that's why the democracy rhetoric is constant. And it's pretty ironic that that a party that claims to want to be healing democracy and and dealing with all these divisions is being actively divisive. But that is literally the choice they're presenting. We're for democracy. The other party isn't. And all the weird parsing and backtracking that the Biden administration has been doing in the last few days uh, after his Philadelphia speech isn't helping because the candidates are going out there and saying, we care about democracy. The other party doesn't. They're making it a stark choice. Now, that might have political payoff for them in the short term. But in the long term, people are getting really sick of this condescending democracy talk from people who, A, support MAGA candidates and the primary in order to have a, a weaker opponent, B, constantly talk about democracy, but then have governors of major states or people running for governor who say this sort of thing. It's it's become just noise. And the truth is, we actually do have several crises in our democracy right now that do require unity and leadership, particularly with regard to voting and the integrity of elections. These are things average people are worried about, and there is no one speaking to that in the run-up to this election. I mean... There is something different about saying there's a threat to our democracy and saying we don't need your party in our state. Because this they think a, those people are a threat to democracy, so they don't I, want them. Okay, but we have two parties right. in the United States. If you say that one party, I mean, this is the danger of the rhetoric here in yes. a weird way, like boomerang. I mean, I, I don't want to like be, I, I sound sort of naive, but... um. If you say we have a threat to democracy and then you simultaneously say that one party in uh, out of a two party system is illegitimate, then there is no deigned threat to the democracy. The democracy is over. You have just said well, that one of the two parties in the United States is no longer a legitimate force. Uh, uh, and so therefore, you know, that's it. So so you better do whatever you can to seize power and hold it, because 
there's 70 million people, you know, of electoral age who are who support fundament the fundamental uh, who are fundamentally illegitimate. And you better protect the country in all ways possible. Well, we should define our terms in the way that they do not, because as this 2014 Cuomo quote illustrates, part of the problem is that Democrats have routinely confused and conflated their moral values with democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy broadly bleeds into and lacks a definition, a distinct definition, with their own policy preferences. And they've been doing this for quite some time. Um, confusing and conflating what they believe to be inviolable American values, in Cuomo's words in 2014, the right to life, anti-assault weapons, being pro-gay, that sort of thing, um, with the assault on democracy. Now, the assault on democracy is real, is genuine, and does have some overlap with broadly shared American values about egalitarianism and anti-majoritarianism, etc. Um, but Democrats have in the last two years managed to convince themselves of the idea that their personal political preferences and uh, anything that goes against them are, are democracy, democracy broadly defined. Um, and that's sort of maybe more educated Democrats and uh, political professionals recognize these, these distinctions, but they've been blurring the line for so long that I'm not sure their voters do. I think their voters genuinely believe that there is very little difference between an effort to overturn an election and the conventional conduct of American jurisprudence in the courts that overturns a precedent. I don't think they see a right. distinction between those two things. These are rights broadly defined as they understand them. And any assault on that right is an assault on egalitarianism itself in the American experiment. That's how their minds have gotten around this thing. Well, okay, so Abe, Biden did this exact conflation in the speech on Thursday, right? I mean, the way he said, here's this terrible threat to democracy. Uh, you know, it's terrible. It's a really terrible thing. Um, and, you know, if you don't support my green agenda, you you hate democracy. I mean, essentially, the second half of the speech was it was a literal conflation of the democratic policy agenda with the idea that a failure to support the democratic policy agenda ends America as we know it. Um, now, people can say whatever they want to say. Politi politicians, generally speaking, particularly if they're going for a mass vote, right? Or they're, they're like talking to the entire country or an entire state or something like that. Have a, um, again, Trump sort of changed the rules about this, or at least for himself, but have a vested interest in um, toning down their rhetoric in order to make it the most pleasing to the most ears. I mean, ultimately, it's like Muzak. Why was Muzak played in every elevator for 50 years? Because it was a kind of generic version of music, right? That's sort of what you expect from mass politicians, right? They say, you know, don't ever bet against America. What, whatever it is, whatever things they say, they're sort of pleasing to the ear and are not deliberately offensive to an enormous number of people. Um, and yes, Trump completely broke the mold where this is concerned. But what's interesting is Trump, you can make the argument, fa he failed. He got himself elected and then he got himself defeated and then he got, he got his party defeated. This is not a good track to go down. Like he, he, he both, 
used it in a way that no one else had weaponized rhetoric in a way that no one else ever had before and then paid the price for it. And now Democrats are following him down this, you know, this um, this path seems very odd to me that they that the the only lesson they learned from Trump wasn't don't ignore the white working class. That, that that lesson they haven't learned. What they've learned is, you know, say really awful things about the other side that are deliberately offensive and that, you know, make the other side really, really angry and, you know, supposedly therefore rally your side. Trump, you know, recall, also says it about his own side. From the beginning, he, he said to Republicans, I don't need you. Um, that's a very good point. But uh, that said, I don't think this actually is entirely sort of uh, uh, springs from Trump. For years, we've been talking about the fact that uh, if you're in Congress, somehow it's become the idea that uh, a willingness to compromise with the other side may be one of the worst things you could you could broadcast. Right. Um, whereas that that didn't really used to be the case. It was, a, it was a virtue that you would brag about that you could get things done uh, across the aisle. Um, and now, now there's this idea that uh, if you say that, well, then you're, that means you're sort of uh, collaborating with, with terrorists and monsters or something. In that sense, what these governors are saying, what these people are saying is a, is a sort of natural extension of that, right? It's 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 saying we 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 don't we don't need you. We we have our side. Your side is wrong. This this that the game is no longer played by working together by even countenancing your positions. But there's a, that's important because it's also a a continuation of a kind of elite messaging that I think there's some of in the Republican Party as well, but most of it is has cohered in the Democratic Party, the college-educated white party, as it's, it's rapidly becoming. Um, Obama had a bit of this in his rhetoric sometimes. You know, that's the, you know, let them cling to their guns. That's a very dismissive statement. It's Obama, not a just, statement of fear. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just to bring this up, I mean, what was it when he would say that uh, the, the, the Republicans who were against the JCPOA were analogous to the 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 mullahs in Iran. Exactly. Like yeah. there's a sort of it, it, but it was very contemptuous, very dismissive. It actually wasn't a, an expression of any fear for the for the system, for democracy. And I don't think that it is a, an expression of fear on the part of Chris or Hochul right now either. Any of the other politicians who are using this rhetoric, it is a very elite expression. When he talks about oh, love always wins, that is literally a bumper sticker you see in in blue, <laughs> heavily blue state suburbs on Volvos. Like that that's literally what he's expressing there. And that is there's an there's a sort of elite overlay to all this that that in the past few years has been fed by an embrace in the culture war on the side of the left of all these progressive ideas. They're getting way out ahead of where most Americans live in terms of what people think about gender, about race, about the economy. Like they don't, there's a lot of class stuff going on here too that Republicans tend to ignore but a lot of the voters that Trump got in 2016 had previously voted for Barack Obama. And those are the people who were told constantly under the new regime that, you know, and I, you know, I don't use regime in the way some of our friends on the right do the new administration, that they were still really horribly racist. They were racist. This was all about race. They were told that for several years. Now they're being told that their economic concerns are really because they won't buy an electric car. I mean, it's a, it's the messaging is very class based here, too. Okay, let's think about some of the successful politicians of the last half century, because it is very important to note <clears throat> that this retreat 
into your, you know, into your camp and strengthening your camp, uh, at least at the national level, is a is a is a new wrinkle. Okay, so uh, Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1976 as a Democrat espousing extremely socially conservative views, particularly on religion. Notoriously says in a message <clears throat> that had him made fun of in elite circles and was heard very clearly in non-elite circles when he said yes he had had experienced lust in his heart for other women and he felt guilty about it which was a message to evangelical christians that you know secular cosmopolitan types had no idea what the the, the language he was using and why that was going to ring very well on the exact people that he needed to come out and vote for him in 1976. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, maybe the most conservative candidate of, you know, up to that point, had been a Democrat until the late 1950s and was a union leader, was president of the Screen Actors Guild and famously said, I was a Democrat. And I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. So I was you. I'm part of you. If you're a Democrat in Macomb County, Michigan, you can follow me. The water's fine. I still have the same concerns that you had. I just don't see how that party is going to help you. But I still hear the music that was played you know, uh, you know that 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 the Democratic Party played when it was at its greatest. And of course, Bill Clinton in 1992 was a new Democrat, which meant that he supported the death penalty. <laughs> he attacked Sister Soldier, and he talked about the screwing of the middle class. All three of those were classic. You know, that was. And then George W. Bush, who got elected governor in Texas in 1994, a seat that was held, he defeated a Democrat to win that governorship. And then his entire political message was, I can work with Democrats. Look at my friend, Bob Bullock, the uh, the leading Democrat in Texas. He and I work really great together. And then he wins 60% of the vote in 1998. And he is immediately the leading candidate for president in 2000 because he had proved that he could cross the aisle and work with others. And where did this start coming a cropper? <clears throat> with Barack Obama. Why? Because Barack Obama had no legacy. He had no legacy. He ran, you know, he he was a he was a sort of le liberal to left-wing academic uh, Democrat. Um, and he had no, he, you know, he didn't work across the aisle with anybody. He barely had been in politics altogether or done anything of any note. And so he then retreat in some sense retreated to his base, where he retreated to say, I'm out of politics. I'm not, you know, I'm young. I'm vibrant. They screwed everything up. I was against the Iraq war and I'm black. And so vote, you can vote for me. I'm a wholly new thing. In also, politics. I, I think it's a really good point. And I think part of what, what made him so different was that not only did he not have this um, political experience and political record um, to shape that the kind of pitch that those other people were making, but his whole understanding of, people who disagreed with him politically came from um, the academy, came from uh, 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 the university. Um, and that is where, the, that is where, especially if you're, if you're anywhere on the left, anywhere left of center, 
um, the idea of compromising with someone who is described as a conservative or uh, uh, an American Republican is 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 automatically a bad thing. The the, the incentives are entirely different right. from the from the, the the sort of scholar, the academic incentives, the intellectual incentives are entirely different from the political ones. And that was more of what Obama brought uh, into right. politics that at, at such a high level that wasn't there before. Right. The, so the moral clarity. Yeah. The moral yeah. clarity thing, which which encourages grandstanding, not compromise. You see it in the media. And, and that's now seeped into a lot of our cultural right. institutions. Right. So in 2008, Obama runs against McCain. What's McCain's message? I'm a maverick. I'm not a conventional Republican. I work with people across the aisle and I do interesting things. I'm you can't categorize me. And he got crushed. And then 2012, Romney wins. He says, hey, I'm a Republican, but I was governor of a Democratic state. and." Uh, you know, and they're like, you are a racist who who puts dogs on the roof of your cars and you kill people who have cancer and you're terrible. And then basically, uh, Republicans said, OK, enough or enough. We've had enough. We keep nominating people who say we can reach out beyond our barrier and they get and they get crushed by a combination of the larger party which the democrats are and and the mainstream media and we're done and so everybody who who made the made those kinds of noises in 2016 you know uh, trump crushed beneath his heel and then he wins but as i say his actual governing uh successes and his rhetoric once he became president, were profoundly destructive to him and lost and lost Republicans the, the House and then lost Republicans the Senate. As in the middle of those two events, he lost the presidency. Uh, and the terrible thing is that, as I say, now you have Democrats who are echoing this kind of, you know, you stink. Everybody who thinks differently from what is in my platform stinks, as opposed to we may have, at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We all want to say we want our families to prosper. We want our, you know, we want the American dream to work for everybody. We want, no, you stink and I don't, and the people who believe in me don't. And I, I don't know how far gone we are as a country, but it still strikes me that this is very self-defeating. When Kathy Hochul said what she said in uh, about you know Republicans not belonging in the state of New York, um, that's that smelled to me sort of like Chris, like oh man, she is not good at this. She is not good at running in the you know she. There is very little reason to believe that she will not prevail in November. This is a highly democratic state the abortion message is going to you know is going to ring very loudly lee zeldin who was the republican candidate has a you know has a sort of an unambiguous pro-life record um but i you know she is she is doesn't sound like somebody who is going to win uh convincingly or going away and and I, i don't know like i say i think People are just learning the wrong lessons, but politicians are learning the wrong lessons. Like, remember, if you do really well on MSNBC, you're only appealing to a million people at any given moment. These are people who need five, six, seven, ten million people to go out and vote for them. 
or in the case of a presidency, 80 million people to go out and vote for them. Uh, and it's just interesting that, you know, that, that, that Trump, who followed along the lines of Obama's actual divisiveness, though, you know, this is something that nominally Democrats and liberals will not admit that Obama was a spectacularly divisive president. Nonetheless, uh, you know, this is not a good course to follow. Unless the country really is, you know, dead in the water. I don't know. And the country is not dead in the water. And you know how you'll know this if you go to David Bonson's economics course and learn yourself some wisdom about economics and how uh, human flourishing works together with ideas, principles, practices, uh, and um, and a, a solid foundation in how uh, money is made, how human relations are reflected in market forces, and how we do what we do in order to make our families prosper and to and to bring uh, uh, growth not only to ourselves but to our communities, our families, our churches, our synagogues, and our country. Uh, David, who runs a uh, investment management firm with three and a half billion dollars under management knows where if he speaks and he has designed an entirely free totally free course at bonson.com that's b-a-h-n-s-a-n.com uh you go you see a big b you move your eye over to the middle of the page you click on the economics course you fill out your name you fill out your email and you are there for 30 lectures syllabi uh discussions uh that will give you a thorough graduate level grounding in economics uh this is the best offer out there as far as i can tell because it's an offer it is a generous effort to educate rather than uh to sell you something so bonson.com economics course david bonson's economics course go there today um no what do you want to talk about blake masters what about Blake Masters? <clears throat> um, Is there something about Blake Masters I I don't know? Well, he got this new oppo drop from uh, published in the Huffington Post, um, but we've been talking about this guy's rather prolific writings. Um, <clears throat> most of in his in his twenties, most of which identify uh, American foreign policy as the locus of evil in the world, the the chief tormentor of the human condition. Um, when he was in his twenties, he wrote about. Uh, he wrote this. Uh, uh, oh, yes. OK. To his uh, he was in part of some sort of a left leaning community in his in his college days. I don't know what I, what I, what. I, but nevertheless, quote, when something like 9-11 happens, you've got to ask who benefits, especially when the U.S. government has shown in the past that sacrificing citizens for political goals is something that it is willing to do. To which I'm reminded that, you know, all, all these new right voters who look at Republicans who for the past 20 years of their life have been fighting this sort of nonsense from the far left and say, you've changed. Um, this is the sort of thing that we've been talking about, about this, the rise of this particular view on the new right that embraces the idea of its persecution from nebulous, ill-defined, and yet omnipresent and omnipotent forces um, that will nevertheless, that will uh, inevitably lead them into conspiratorial thinking. And where does conspiratorial thinking lead you? In this direction, and ultimately uh, in an anti-Semitic direction. 
this line of thinking does not end here. Um, it invariably, because this is the left-leaning view, leads to the idea that this was uh, a war to define, that the war was brought about to redefine uh, the geopolitical conditions in the Middle East to favor the United States and Israel. Um, I know this because this is the line of, of, of thought that I've been arguing against for two consecutive decades. Uh, and to see it evinced on the right and embraced by the right is particularly dispiriting. And it's the sort of thing that I don't think we should let lie. Um, it, it portends really ominous intellectual developments on the political right. So uh, I, I, as, as you've been speaking, I'm looking up uh, the, 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 the quotes in question. Uh, there's a little more here. Uh, Blake Master saying, quote, I just want to point out that there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a conspiracy theorist or a revisionist historian, Masters wrote. This is in May 2006. <laughs> Given how many state-run conspiracies and official revisionist projects have taken place in recent history, it would be crazy to pretend that such things are no longer possible or that it couldn't happen here. How so, many of our friends do we see yeah. endorse whatever Chomskyist excrement falls from the mouth of Glenn Greenwald? because it just flatters their vision of themselves as uniquely besieged by ill-defined forces with immense power. Okay, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to trump you on your two decades and go to four decades and say that, you know, there's been a fight on the right between deliberate, provo deliberately provocative uh, ideas. This is also academically driven, by the way, but where you are... Um, uh, where the college experience often inclines people when they're sitting in their dorm rooms, having those late night bull sessions to, to experiment with your ideas and then take them to the most extreme possible limit to see, you know, how, what you can say or what you will say that at some point you'll go, no, I'm sorry, that's too far. And often this is, I mean, I had experiences in the early 1980s with conversations with pro-lifers who would, as we were talking, get to a point at which they would support the bombing of abortion clinics, for example, on the grounds that if this is a way to frighten people into not performing abortions, the ends justify the means, da-da-da-da-da. Same thing on the left. I mean, there's similar kinds of arguments can be made on the left. Uh the kinds of fantasies about assassinating Ronald Reagan, which were very prevalent uh, in the early 1980s. People are tempted and driven and tempted by extremism, like particularly if you like ideas for the sake of ideas or you like you, you ideas are a playground to you as opposed to a practical life. And uh, Blake Masters is one of those people. Uh, it's very clear that he is one of those people that his time uh, at Stanford uh, he was one of those people and then who wanted to sort of take things as far as you could possibly take them because that's how you were being intellectually honest. And that was how you would be without, you know, manly, you would be without fear. You would accept the logical consequences or the logical terms of your ideas and take them to the farthest possible limit. And that was what honesty, that was what ruthless what was that radical honesty? Remember, everybody remember radical honesty from 10 years ago? This is what we should all do. We should all just tell the truth and then see where the where 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 the truth lies. Well, um, this is a horrible uh, intellectual tendency. It's what leads people to start out, you know, being kind of like mildly distributionist. And then some of them end up in the Khmer Rouge or end up in, 
you know, at the Sorbonne or end up in the weather underground uh, when they start out just as sort of like liberals who want redistributionism um, uh, at, at their at its worst. Like this is this is where it goes. And uh, and Blake Masters um, is one of the first candidates uh people who's actually were actually running for office who come out of this tendency and um and it is terrifying and he's going to lose that race because he's crazy and unless he says you know uh I'm disgusted to see that I said this I was you know I was 22 years old or 19 years how old he was when he said it and I'm appalled by myself and I work, I've worked on myself and yada, da, 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 da. Okay, I but, doubt he'll say that. It would be the second time he would have to have said that because he's already apologized for some of his, or clarified, not apologized, clarified some of his writings in his 20s. Not all, because we still don't know why he quoted Herman Gehring favorably. But there, but there's a, there is something of a double standard when we're talking about cultural figures versus political ones uh, with regard to uh, youthful indis- intellectual indiscretions, right? So Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, uh, you know, 1619 Project, Doyen, she wrote terribly racist things in college. And when Do asked to, yes, when, when asked, when asked to, to, say I was wrong, eh, they don't really do that. They kind of hedge their bets and figure whatever I, you know, they just continue. But for politicians, it used to be, we, you know, there's always been conspiracy theorists embedded in, in both political parties, but we now, our political process rewards the provocateurs in a way it didn't even when Masters was in college, right? You would all, you could have those over the top folks, but they were by way of how the system worked, kept in check to some extent, or in the case of, you know, the Birchians is totally expelled, like deliberately expelled, pushed out of the party. Uh, but this is a problem now with how people get their information. And, and I'll say social media has transformed this. We see this happening and re- rewarding people who go into politics in a way that provo- provocateurs used to gravitate more towards entertainment because that's where they were rewarded for that behavior. But now they're rewarded for it in politics. And the the right, un- unfortunately, has a few more of them, you know, the Lauren Boeberts, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Blake Masters. And they are, he might lose, but that kind of politician is is winning more than losing i think long term and that's that is one of the things i think is a legitimate threat to democracy because it, and it's both sides both sides have those people the right tends to be a little more over the top right now but that's there are plenty of those folks on the left too oh yeah oh no, that's well well i mean but that's why it's everyone's paying attention to it on the right because we're kind of used to it on the left you know it's 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 sort of this, there's been a standard element of that uh, for a long time on the left that that is even respected in some circles, you know, I mean, not by me, not by us, but but there is a, a sort of extreme crank uh, academic academic element that's long been there on the left. When oh, it yeah. happens on the right, then it says, oh, well, th- threat to democracy. This is this is out. This is an outrage. This is bad. No, I mean, I mean uh, so, yeah. If we decide the if we divide the intellectual life from the political life, right? So you have uh, who is the most who is the best selling historian of the last twenty five years or something? If you want to read, uh, you know, history of the United States, Howard Zinn, who is a crank, who is a leftist crank, defames, slanders, trashes the United States. That book has sold two, three million copies, like fully uh, embraced by the mainstream, made into a, totally, a series yeah. and, and everything. Yeah. 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 OK, so so but, you know, the old he is not put up. He has not put himself up for a public referendum. 
right? That is what Blake Masters has done. That's what's interesting about Blake Masters. This is a major state, and it's not Mississippi. You know, it's not like Oklahoma, which goes 78% for Trump or whatever. It's Arizona. Uh, guess who won Arizona in 2020? Um, uh, you know, guess how many senators in Arizona are Democrats right now? Two. So Blake Masters is running in a purple state, uh, and he is now being exposed as a radical extremist. Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even like, you know, Ilhan Omar and a couple of those people, they're in congress they are in very homogeneous congressional districts that have been designed to be homogeneous by gerrymandering and other things in order to run up the numbers of their respective parties and they are therefore able to be extremist because there's no counter there's no counterweight to them once they embrace that there's no democratic party in marjorie taylor green's district uh, you know, worthy of knocking her off, right? This is so, a little different than those provocateurs, even Ilan Omar, who I think is a lightweight. Um, Blake Masters is an intellectual. He, he well, he's a pseudo-intellectual. Let's pseudo call him intellect- a pseudo-intellectual. Well, I don't even know if that's fair. He's spent a, a lot of his time in academia and uh, covering himself in sheepskin. And I think he genuinely believes and has a lot of uh, intellectual energy invested in the I, this Ron Paulian a quasi-libertarian Lou Rockwell vision of the United States as a force for evil in the world. I think he really believes that. I think a lot of the left genuinely believes that. It was previously not native to the right, but it has become as, you know, especially in Arizona where the, the party has this psychotic vendetta against John McCain and trying to overturn everything he ever believed in and repudiate everything he ever believed in. That also means American exceptionalism. Exceptionalism. That also means America is a force for good in the world. I think there's a real intellectual force behind this in a way that the provocateurs who only want to elevate their particular personal brands don't share. Um, And it's not the same sort of new right a protectionist vision of America first that is sort of advanced by to a much lesser extent with no intellectual basis, Donald Trump, but also J.D. Vance, who's a much smarter character. Um, This is this is not new, but it is new to see it have as much purchase as it does to the point where you can have a candidate for federal office on the statewide level representing these views. Now, he's not doing so full throatedly, perhaps because he understands what a liability they are. He's smart, Um, but he is nevertheless legitimizing this view on the right and i think it's it's quite dangerous and we shouldn't uh, minimize it and say well this is just another effort to to get oh. you know publicity or attract you know these voters i think he's on a crusade oh i'm not i'm not minimizing it at all the guy was writing for lou rockwell's disgusting website you know in 2005 2006 that's why i call him a pseudo intellectual there is no one more pseudo intellectual than the Ron Paul, Lou Rockwell wing. These are not people who are steeped in Montaigne and, you know, Pico della Mirandola and the, you know, an Epicurus. They believe in garbage. They'll believe anything they read and they're kind of tempted by Mein Kampf. They kind of like some of the theories in Mein Kampf and they love that, you know, they love Raspai and they like anything that smacks of racialist extremism that is what tempts them that is what that is what you know make let's get back to pavlov that's what makes them salivate and he's had this since 2006 and peter Thiel, who is his boss 
and was his predecessor at Stanford, Peter Thiel has become a sponsor of vile and vicious views. Uh, having started out, he's an intellectual. Peter Thiel is an intellectual. He was the, the number one supporter of First Things magazine. He you know, wrote a book, a creditable book with David Sachs on affirmative action when he was a very young kid. He is a serious person and his views are unbelievably dangerous. And they, by the way, they they cover the a weird waterfront because on the one hand, um, he's an Orthodox Catholic. And on the other, he is a believer in trying to figure out ways in which human beings can live forever, which strikes me as a heresy and an idol, you know, as a as a, as a as a religious heresy, if you're somebody who believes what he believes. Um, but he's a very, very, I like him personally, by the way, he's a very dangerous person and Blake Masters is a very dangerous person and he is the same person. There is very little reason to believe that he is not the same person that he was in 2006. A lot of people grow. A lot of people, you know, say stupid stuff in their op-eds that they write for college newspapers, me included, probably. I mean, I don't remember what it, you know, it's like people do dumb things when they're kids that they have to apologize for later when they go up before a Senate judiciary hearing. You know, uh, I mean, Robert Bork, Howell Heflin of Alabama said he was voting against Robert Bork because Robert Bork had been a socialist when he was in college. That was disingenuous of him, but it just shows you like, you know, you, you have to own up to what you know and things <clears throat> what, may, may happen. What I struggle to reconcile is as, as much as this. I hate to use the word libertarian because it's not really libertarian, but it has found a home on the libertarian right. This this um, mistrust of the use of American power, the projection of American force abroad, uh, and couple that with that uh, traditionally accompanies a vision uh, of that is friendly towards limited government because the government is the force of evil in, in the world, and therefore it should be constrained and curtailed and prevented from doing all these evil things that they think it's doing. But it has tethered itself to this sort of MAGA pro-Trump America first vision that is exemplified by what Donald Trump told donors on a conference call on Monday where he was endorsing Jeff Deal, who's now the nominee for governor of Massachusetts, this uh, very uh, election denying, uh, unpalatable candidate for this particular state who's going to lose spectacularly, quote, he'll rule your state with an iron fist. Now, this is something that is presented as, I suppose, that would be attractive to Republican voters. Yay, I would love to be ruled with an iron fist. How does this this vision has found allies that are intellectually incompatible? Uh, and and yet, the, I, I suppose if there's a, a thread that connects these two seemingly incompatible belief systems, it is that they just hate this country. That's right. I was about to say exactly the same thing. And it's a but it's a different kind of hatred from the hatred of this country that we see from Nicole Hannah Jones and types like that. But that's what's interesting about it is that um, it you all of it used to have a patriotic veneer. And now that is gone. Like and I, I don't think libertarian, even though Lou Rockwell, I think, characterized himself as a libertarian. Obviously, Ron Paul characterized, you know, is a libertarian. I mean, to be fair to Ron Paul, I mean, he voted against every piece of government spending. That was what, what he was. 
Um, but you know, Blake Masters is not a liberal. Peter Thiel is not a libertarian. They are now very tempted by this, you know, common good conservatism, which is basically redistributionist radicalism repurposed toward right wing goals, right? Religious or, Marxism. Or, religious Marxism is a good way to put it. They're not libertarians. And what and what motivates them and what really jazzes them is uh, that, yeah, they hate America as it now is. Now, maybe they would say we liked America the way it was once and we want to go back there because these le the liberal regime has destroyed everything good. But they don't say that. They say John Locke destroyed everything 100 years before the Constitution was written. I mean, so this is exact. This is the perverse mirror image of the 1619 project, which is America was born in original sin. The original sin on the, uh, you know, uh, was slavery, according to the 69 project. And the original sin, according to these people, was the decision to believe that people could be a blank slate rather than, you know, putting God at the center of, uh, you know, of, of all human existence, including its uh, uh, including political arrangements. And so they hate this country and I hate them. I don't know. I mean, we hate them and we're there's, trying to fight them. Yeah, go ahead. There's there's I think there's a lot of very strange and, and quite interesting things about about all of this and about about the, the weirdness of, of the bedfellows here. And just to go back to Noah's point about how this, this going trend, this how this trends toward anti-Semitism anti ultimately. Um, I have to say it's it has been unexpected and strange to me that the common good conservatives, whatever they are, trad cons, the, the Marxist Christians, whatever, um, are, um, have not actually, I mean, decidedly not embraced uh, anti-Israel attitudes, anti-Semitism. Anti I'm not, not saying it will hold, but it's interesting that that, 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 that is very much sort of not noticeably absent from the mix. In fact, there are a number of them that are Jews, some of them observant Jews um, yes. who, who defend this stuff. And yes. the it's it's interesting that in this marriage of these radical pseudo libertarians and libertarians, they're the ones more likely to import the 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 racism and the anti-Semitism into this movement. But that's very that is a very important point. Like, I mean, no one on Earth. I have many problems, though, we an old friend of mine and we published him to profit but i mean i i i am i am a very much a critic of yoram hazoni's work but you can't call yoram hazoni an anti-semite but blake masters comes out of the anti-semitic wing of the conservative movement lou rockwell and ron paul are anti-semites ron paul was an anti-semite jamie kirchick did you know notable work 10 12 15 years ago going through those ron paul newsletters and it is vile and the and and I think as this whole thing started because he wrote a trutherist, a defense of trutherism, right? And this is what the Huffington Post has discovered about Blake Masters. And trutherism ends up being anti-Semitic 97% of the time. Because this can't melt steel and this and that. You know what? The Israel no Israeli was it was in the World Trade Centers. And they got the message, like, don't come, don't come in today. 
because uh, that was, you know, the Jews did it. And that, you know, and that is where those ideas, that's the fever swamp. And so Blake Masters was, you know, that was his amniotic fluid was the anti-Semitic fever swamp. So, you know, and uh, anyway, it's interesting because, you know, whoever got that for the Huffington Post, there's more where that came from. And it's only September and there's two more months and he is going, I, I predict he will be a rotten husk on the floor come election day. Can I, can I just add one thing about what, what something that Noah mentioned earlier about Trump's call where he said ruling with an iron fist, because we call out and have, have consistently called out rhetoric on the left when it when it gets this this really bothered me because we fought a revolution not to be ruled we fought a revolution to be governed it's a very different thing and the the idea that that there's there's a contingent on the right in this country that thrills to the idea of being ruled is concerning <laughs> and that kind of rhetoric i know we can we, it might just be semantics to a lot of people but it matters that trump said it in that way and that people thought that that was a very good thing. much it is exactly what john was talking about yesterday this was a conference call this was not supposed to be heard by everybody this is supposed to be heard presumably by the people who would like it and respond to it republican donors who want to be ruled with an iron fist this is what they're jazzed about. Yeah, it's no, they don't yeah, want to be them. No, no, they don't want to be ruled. They by assume them. they'll be the rulers. So it's fine. But it's yeah. the same point you were making <laughs> yeah. about Hillary Clinton's deplorable. She knew she was in a friendly room that everybody would respond yeah. positively to that. Yeah. But somebody knew right. the rest of the world wouldn't. Well, I think what what the way we can link the disparate elements of this podcast and then say goodbye till tomorrow is to say that. Uh, politicians who ordinarily seek to make themselves the most palatable to the largest number of people in order to win elections um, have embraced instead on both sides of the aisle divisive inflammatory rhetoric that is designed to turn off people consciously and purposefully in order because if you can turn those people off, you can turn your own people on. And this is a sea change. This is not the way a participatory Republican democracy works. And I think that it's a perversion and that it will not last because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make marketing sense. It doesn't make it doesn't make salesman sense and it doesn't make political sense. But if it does last, if we have moved into this phase, then the idea that our democracy is under is at great risk. And I don't mean from election denying. I mean, because the American people have tired of the habits, behaviors and um, necessary compromises that make up a representative republic in which you have to live with people with whom you disagree that's the risk and that we are moving into a new a new phase and a new degraded uh, uh, I, I, god I, I don't know where we go from here it's very frightening uh i'm 61 but you know i have i have teenage kids and so and uh, so does christine and noah has preteen kids and like uh we got to do what we can to save this country from that because you know we got we got posterity behind us that's going to have to live here and make good among, uh, you know, we we've lived through this period and it's um it's terrifying, frankly, and it's not 
terrifying because people said that Donald Trump actually won the election. That's not the frightening part. The frightening part is that they are then willing to say, well, if he he won the election and the fact that people aren't accepting that he won the election means that we now have to uh, destroy other institutions and continue, as Noah pointed out about the, you know, about really the radical right wingers that they've just they they're just mirror images of the America haters that of the left that I grew up with in the 60s and 70s and that hardened my patriotism and my sense of love of country. And maybe that'll happen, you know, perversely, too. Let's hope. Anyway, uh, till tomorrow. Uh, I'm uh, for Abe Christina No. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.